0: That's the uh, 5am lockdown, birdsong and street sounds. Not the usual background in central London, but again, this is not a usual time. Since we're socially distanced more than usual, this episode features some interviews from our travels back in the day when that was allowed. In our next episodes, we're going to be speaking with retailers on the front line, the second line and the thin lines as we chat with those balancing commerce with community ...and with their responsibilities as employers. But for now, let's enjoy hearing from retailers in New York and Amsterdam... ...who we interviewed on our travels. Let's go initially to New York to chat with Ricard Frost. He's the Chief Consumer Officer at Alexander Wang Incorporated. Ricard joined Alexander Wang as Senior Vice President of Digital... ...and was promoted to his CCO role two years ago... ...reflecting a move from channel focus to consumer focus... The Alexander Wang approach, born in New York City, to be worn worldwide, certainly resonates now. So ordinarily I'd make some apology for the street noise, the background gurgling of radiators and the honk of trucks. However, after four weeks at home, any recollection of the bustle of New York is really welcome. So let's hear from Rickard. Uh, Ricard, thank you so much for letting us into your office. Thanks uh, for having me. How would you describe this area? Because it's it's pretty cool compared to, you know, some of the Fifth Avenue and Uptown posh offices. It's a bit more urban.
1: It is. I, uh, I enjoy really the, the mix between being right in between Tribeca and Chinatown, where we are situated right south of Canal Street on Broadway in New York. There's an interesting mix between the different sides of New York, and something that I think we, as a brand, really also benefit from having access to mm. so many different parts of um, or, or aspects of the city. I
0: say. So um, let's talk a bit about the brand uh, first off. So uh, I've I was surprised at how young he was because the brand, yeah, you know, it's been in my consciousness for a while. Yeah. Um, and sort of seen him to be in his fifties or you know one of these sort of elder states people of brands. Yeah, you know, young designer. Young designer. Um,
1: just just characterize uh, the brand for me. The brand started really uh, was started by Alex when he was still at Parsons. He was a very talented young designer, and all of a sudden his uh, clothes became very popular, and he pursued his vision on starting a brand and, and producing and designing clothes under his name. Uh, that was actually 15 years ago this year. We're celebrating our 15th wow. anniversary. And I think at the time he was only 21 or 22 years old. So nice. he started really young. Yeah. And we've been, uh, yeah, we're a niche. Um, it's it's hard to, to characterize it because we don't want, really want to put us in any standard buckets but it's it's high-end clothing Uh, it's uh, we're a very global brand we we produce ready-to-wear handbags shoes and uh, and different types of accessories and we distribute the product in Asia in the US and, and in Europe mainly but um.
0: So it changes season on season so one, one year is kind of black and minimal and then it's playful and a bit post-punky in some respects so very mixed but it does feel like a younger brand so even though it's you know uh, it hasn't got uh, a cheap price point by, by any means but it does seem you know more uh, Gen Z than uh, you know some of the other established Soho uh, luxury brands.
1: Yeah and I think we you know it comes from partly from having a, a, a designer and a creative director who is part of that generation. He is not uh, trying to adapt to, uh, to that generation like other more older brands may have to do. It's, it's something that comes naturally and he's uh, we're constantly trying to adapt and, and challenge the way that the fashion system works and how can we act in a way that's interesting and kind of let us uh, move away from some of the limitation that comes with being part of the traditional fashion system.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that's part of what makes it interesting and so to work in. What are those
0: in. limitations that maybe others I mean,
1: We have, you know, the seasons, the fashion weeks, the fashion show f- as a format for displaying your products. There's a lot of expectations. Uh, on a fashion brand in participation in the system it, it all media the brands the distribution retail real estate it's all connected the more you can kind of and you you can leverage the system but you can also try to challenge it where it makes sense and if it can help you become more relevant and, and successful and that's what we're trying to do in, in some cases uh,
0: we talked a little about the customer and they, they definitely are younger playful but our are... I think that gives more challenges in some way to to connect with them because it's a pretty demanding customer group. So, just tell us a bit about your role first of all. So, chief customer officer. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually it's very close. It's chief consumer officer with an so. emphasis <laughs> on uh, on action, on on the consumer. Yeah. So, we you know we acknowledge that we need to speak directly to the consumer. And as a luxury brand, we need to control that, all of the customer interactions at every touch point. And we have a a strong need to really grow this part of the business, just like any brand is doing now. We're part of the same uh, kind of macro trend where brands go direct to consumers to... To talk to them and to give them experiences and give them engage them in ways that can nurture a long-term relationship with the consumer, mm. as opposed to going through the more traditional wholesale model, where you don't have as much control over experience or margin or pricing or whatever it may be that's important for a luxury brand to maintain control over. So that's what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm overseeing. E-commerce and retail and um, franchise stores for for the company.
0: We've been wandering around to, to store tours, visiting stores in uh, in Soho, predominantly Soho Meatpacking, and you know it seems like every luxury brand is trying somehow to give an experience yeah. and you know connect to the customer. Yeah, but I, I'm really harsh, but the only luxury store that I thought, wow, this is actually fun was Gucci. Yeah. Incredible store, fantastic stuff, great product range, you know, but you know, 10,000 square feet of some of the nicest retail space I've seen. The rest of the um, luxury business were nice, don't get me wrong, but just kind of a bit staid and normal. You, you could have been in a mall in Hong Kong or Singapore. You know, there was no... It was just competence. You know. So how, how do you go about creating something that really connects with customers? Where are those points of difference or experience? I think
1: it starts with um, understanding the consumer and who your the, the audience of your brand is. What motivates them? Why do they like your brand? And then connect that back with what the brand really stands for and how it is unique in relation to all the other brands in the market who are also competing in the same space, on the same street, with the similar product categories. Um, and, and it's about creating moments of engagement or moments of joy for the customer where they can walk away from an interaction, um, feeling that it was a pleasure or something that's worth remembering um, because that's gonna make them come back. Mm. And I agree with you, it's it can often appear as a marketing gimmick if you try to create experiences in your retail environment that are not doesn't have anything specific to do with the product or yeah. with the brand or it's about you know branding by doing and not by talking
0: I'm least, uh, uh, pretend you didn't say that. Uh, that, <laughs> that I came up with that. Um, now you I mean that as i on one for two kind of years, two and a half. Two and years and before that. you had acne. I was. Um, yeah. That was a global role, or
1: yeah, it was. Yeah, I uh, was overseeing digital and omni-channel at Acne Studios for yeah. about ten years, yeah. in a very very global role. Acne, as well as Alexander Wang, are in the context of the global luxury market, medium sized or like niche brands, mm-hmm. which means that we need to reach out globally to get the volumes and to find the, the customers who are interested in the brand. And mm-hmm. we had the same similar challenge at, at, when I was at Acne. And uh, uh, it, it means being present in many markets at the same time with a very limited set of resources to make it happen, which is, yeah what makes
0: it fun, in my opinion. And how, how then do you uh, adapt? Because both brands struggle with having a, a very clear global feel about them, but yeah. yet they're sold locally and people buy locally. So that balance between global and local uh, is always a challenge if you're not going to be just very ethereal and very high-end. So how, how do you manage that now to you know, communicate this is on one hand it feels very New York to invade youth, but yet is old, so, so
1: globally. Yeah, I, and I think that's something that it's a balance. You need to preserve what the, the DNA of the brand and, and where it comes from. And for Alexander Wang, it's uh, New York, and, 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 and that is something that we can never forget. Obviously, it's coupled with other aspects of the brand, but we try to keep those and, and codify them, and that enables us to. Bring them to other markets and other cultures and retain them because they are part of why customers in those markets come mm. to buy the product as well. In addition to that, we obviously have to adapt to local uh, habits or norms when it comes to communication or um, retail or shopping habits in general, and that's that's a um, part of the what, what I think is, is challenging, but it's also what actually is something that uh, motivates me to, to understand how to keep the global DNA of the brand and, and the experience while adapting it to local needs.
0: You've got the online and the offline, so they, they've come together you know, with you. So when you're thinking about the consumer, do you still have to balance the different channels or have you got to... A- this heavenly place where it's just the product, the consumer, the brand, you don't worry about channels. How, how do you balance, it? It balance
1: a I've, I've been working in, in both scenarios where you have the different channels, they're very siloed. It's almost a competition between, internal competition between different channels. And especially between retail and e-commerce, it's non-productive. And I, I'm really for an approach where as many aspects as possible of the direct-to-consumer business should be uh, consolidated under the same function. So whether it's buying or uh, ownership of inventory or who owns the customer or communication calendars or plans and anything that can be um, consolidated should be consolidated. But then obviously you need to have Experts operating each individual channel because they, by definition, they are different and they need experts in in each channel. But they they all leverage a shared set of services that should not compete with each other. Or I think the channels can compete for those resources in a in a very kind of productive way and where it's motivating in the fast. For example, the faster you sell a product, the more of the inventory you should get. So it's really up yeah. to... So you're backing a success
0: rather than... Uh...
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how I... I, th- I think it starts with at every level. It's the technology level where you have to have shared systems and shared uh, visibility into w- your data so you can make decisions based on the whole mm. holistic picture. It goes down to how you set up your teams, uh, how you organize the department, how you actively try to avoid building silos. In the organization, and it's it's also something that comes from just thinking about processes and how you incentivize your team and, and motivates them to think about it as a, as a brand, a product, a customer. It's all the same, and and we all have the same shared goal of building it together, regardless of where the consumer chooses to engage with us.
0: Now, um, the careful listener will note that your New York accent is slightly tempered by a bit of Swedish. So um, working uh, in Sweden specifically, you know, very European, out looking culture, swapping to New York, what, what's the difference between working in Europe versus working in the Big Apple?
1: I mean, I think obviously um, comparing Stockholm to New York is, is, is uh, it's two very different cities, yeah. but I think Two very global cities both of them uh, I think in New York you have access to so many resources and so so many influences that can help you become successful there's so much talent in the city uh, and and the American market is obviously very big and and if you make it in the in the. US you have a good foothold uh, to for further global expansion I think in Stockholm you have to be global from day one because the Swedish market is too small to really.
0: That seems but maybe that explains why so many brands that out of Sweden just feel, you know, world ready to begin with. Is because they they have that attitude.
1: They wouldn't exist if they didn't yeah. go uh, global immediately. It has to. It has to happen.
0: And um, you know, one of the things that always strikes me when I visit uh, is the incredible quality of frontline staff here. So it's as if you know, retail is a career. A vocation, uh, a performance. I mean, the service levels, especially flagship stores, are just incredible. So, you know, do you find that you uh, are able to recruit uh, these incredible people easily, or was it a real fight to get the best of the best? It,
1: it is a fight. It's 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 a it's a profession in its own, and it, it's competitive. There's there are very high standards, and and the best. Players in, in in the market, they they're worth a lot of money, and they they know it, and they excel at what they do. Yeah. And it's um, something that, as a brand, you need to really find that the right personality, with the right business mindset, with the right everything has to click. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's 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 a challenge. Where I think yeah. I think we
0: said is right there because it is. It's animating the brand. They have to be the brand, but also probably business Yeah. So we were doing you know sort of behind the scenes tour, and it, you know you have someone's managing a flagship store, and they were just giving us you know no question phase them you know from revenue metrics, performance, staff development, the. You know, the architectural heritage of the building they were in, um, the family-owned company that created the floor tiles. You know it was it was absolutely riveting, and engaging. I was thinking, you know, how, how can we get more people like that yeah. to work for
1: us? Yeah, I mean, they they're at the front lines and they need to understand the brand and and all the aspects of it, and that's what the successful store manager does. Um, Where. Uh, soon about to open a store in uh, in new jersey in the new american dream mall mm. and uh starting to look at recruitment for that store and as you can imagine with 50 luxury brands opening at the same time it's it's becoming very competitive uh out there right well good luck with that
0: yeah <laughs> can you imagine having to bust people in uh, to just you know get some talent from outside now um Back off the front line, so back in head office, what are you looking forward to in 2020? What's your big activity that's keeping you busy?
1: I'm looking forward to the 15 year anniversary for the brand. It's something we're going to celebrate and and try to incorporate into our, the way we, a lot of the business initiatives that we have during the year. I'm also looking forward to further optimizing and building on on what we have. We have so much potential in, in, in all distribution channels and across all functions. And I think that's it's motivating to see how, even though you think you're doing a lot of great things, there's still so many uh, things that's left that you can start working on and problems and challenges to solve. And for us, we're seeing very good momentum at the moment. And, and that's also motivating for me and I think for the teams. Um, China is very important for us.
0: Yeah. And Actually, did well to do so long without talking about China.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah, China is really interesting for us from, from a commercial perspective. There's a lot of potential. We, we believe we can grow in that market if we do it well.
0: And do you do that directly or the franchise partner or wholesale? How are you approaching that?
1: We're going directly through our stores and, and e-commerce, but we also have some wholesale in the market and um, can also reveal that we're gonna launch on on Tmall uh, within a couple of months Uh, and uh, so we're building up an infrastructure on the ground with with the right talent the right systems and the right distribution channels back with the right product and marketing I think we have a good potential and, and a very interesting year ahead of us.
0: Look, I think you've just uh, given the recipe for, for retail and the product, the people, process. You know, yeah. Fantastic. So, look, thanks, thanks so much for welcoming us into your office. The radiators have stopped <laughs> They have, luckily. <laughs> right? But that's the joy of, uh, you know, cast iron and characterful places. Ricard, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Well, wow, thank you, Ricard. What a brand. Now, in keeping with the luxury theme, we journey back in time to the end of 2019, when I caught up with Peter Hay in Amsterdam. Peter is the director of multi-channel at De Bijenkorf, and, and his role encompasses online trading, technology and supply chain. De Bijenkorf is an institution in the Netherlands, occupying an enviable position that dominates Dams Square in Amsterdam, as well as other prime locations throughout the country. It's been a leader in bringing branded fashion to the online market, and it was a great pleasure to catch up with Peter for an update on their activities. Welcome, Peter. It's been a very long time since we've caught up. So, uh, just for the for our one listener, uh, tell us <laughs> tell yeah. us who you are and uh, a bit about uh, De Beinkorf.
2: Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Peter Heij, um, multi-channel director at the Binekorf, which is a. Uh, Holland's uh, luxury department store and part of the Selfridges group uh, of department stores.
0: For people who aren't familiar with its location in the Netherlands, it's I think it kind of defines prime retail space. I mean, even the road signs say, go to the Beinkorf.
2: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. No, it's always on prime locations. Uh, Dam Square, for example, in Amsterdam and other top locations in seven other cities uh, in the Netherlands. But Mm. always triple A locations, indeed. Iconic buildings uh, is uh, what we have.
0: Now, you uh, have also invested a lot in the physical building itself. So, you say luxury department store, people throw that around. Whereas it really is a beautiful place to visit, with very high production values, lots of light and space. Uh, How then do you fit multi-channel into that incredible store experience?
2: For digital and the online channel, obviously it's it's different. It's a completely different skill from uh, refitting a store or making the store look fantastically nice. But there's the same starting points, I would say. And so one of the things that we measure ourselves is really the user experience. Uh, and actually there's quite a number of surveys that survey on 100 points, how good the user experience is online. And uh, we score quite well on those surveys, and that's how we measure ourselves there. And obviously, the imagery and the campaigns, they're all in line with what we do in stores.
0: Yeah, so... So it's um, the best
2: we can do with measuring how fantastic the experience is online.
0: So when you um, moved online, you were able to build out your online stock. The photography was lovely, people were buying online. Mm-hmm. But when they then wanted to come into store, how easy or difficult was it to develop things like the click and collect or reserve or additional information for the store staff?
2: Well, uh, I would say five or six years ago, that was all quite exciting and technologically a bit of a challenge. But I would say nowadays, it's not at all a challenge anymore. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of retailers that don't have it. If you think about uh, the in-store kiosks or the the way you pay or reserve stock or click and collect. So that's not a point of difference anymore, I would say, if you look at uh, all of the retailers. Whereas I think five, six years ago or seven years ago, maybe we were one of the first to do it well. That was nice, but now it's more hygiene factor, I would say.
0: So what do you think um, makes Buying Koff stand out? So uh, it is a crowded market. More and more brands are going online so if i want a product it's pretty easy to find it somewhere what's the magic that makes people choose to buy it from buying
2: i would say it's it's the combination of two things and either thing i mean those two things are are done quite well by a lot of retailers separately but not in combination and those two uh, things are the products the brands uh, we are uh, one of the very few retailers, for example, that sell Cartier online or that sell uh, all of those luxury brands online. And at the other side of it, have uh, have a fantastic online user experience, so a super fast site with the best technology, best checkout, etc. Uh, that combination you seldomly see.
0: Mm. Well, in fact, one of the other places you see that is Selfages, of course. So. You've been part of the Selfridges group for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Uh, has that changed in any way the way that the e-commerce function works here? Because I know that Selfridges are also an early adopter bringing luxury direct-to-consumer. So has that been you know, benefit for you? Have you helped them? How does that work from a group perspective?
2: I think uh, we, we help each other in various ways. And Selfridges, for sure was earlier than we were with bringing those brands online. And they helped us in the negotiations with also bringing those brands online. I think we were, uh, if you look at technology, we've completely insourced all of technology. I think we were earlier than Selfridges, and that's where they uh, are can now learn from us on how we've done that and built a fantastic uh, technology team uh, in-house. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you uh, depending on the topic, but we, uh, we're in touch a lot, calling each other a lot. So that's the two areas where we've learned from each other. So it definitely does help.
0: And so tell us a bit about the team structure you have within Channel. Who's who's within your area?
2: So five years ago, it would only be online trading, uh, your online marketeers, uh, content. That would be the, the core team. But over the years, we've added more parts of the organization to the omni-channel team. First of all, IT and technology. Uh, obviously, we also develop a lot of technology for the store still, but mm-hmm. two thirds of all the work we do is more for digital and the online channel. So that was the first uh, step. And then secondly, also the supply chain team was brought in, because over the years, if you look at all the, 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 the cost we spend on supply chain, more than half is now spent in the online channel. So also there, it made sense to bring that into the team. So it's supply chain, it's technology, and it's the online trading team that form the omnichannel organization. And all those teams need each other desperately. (laughs) Uh, But Yeah, that's been the the key move that we've done organization-wise.
0: Now, I was in um, the US last week, uh, in a week where Nordstrom opened, with a beautiful store which, actually looks a little bit like Selfridges or Mm -hmm. buying course down square. I mean, they're obviously investing in a similar way. And also we see that Barney's has now got into administration. So lots of change and challenge at the luxury end of the department store. What do you think that department stores at that higher end need to be focused on as you look between one and five years? Where, Where do you think the investment needs to be now that everyone is on the channel and the brands are coming to mind as well, where should investment go in order to succeed?
2: Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Very difficult question, to be honest.
0: Uh, everyone has um... got their <laughs> notepad out now, ready, <laughs> ready for your answer.
2: Yeah, it's it, it's it's tough. I mean, the way we look at the next five years, we'll we'll keep on investing uh, in the stores, and but we're trying to put more of our investment into real. Retail experiences, like for example, Selfridges just opened their first, uh, I think, movie theater, yeah, it was. Uh, has a skating uh, ramp. Uh, on the other side, we're also, uh, next year, we'll launch a couple of those type of initiatives where you'll add completely different services to the store experience. Mm-hmm. So I think some somehow longer term, we'll move away from uh, only product and more towards... Services, experience, uh, all those type of things. Just mm. luxury experiences where you can spend a lot of time in our store, also buying products, and then online. Obviously, it's uh, uh, keeping up with the with the industry uh, itself is already a huge investment. So that's what we're trying <laughs> yes. to do.
0: Yeah, and out of all the changes, I mean, we we keep a little track of all the jargon that. Comes up every year, mm-hmm. and what the uh, the top push things are, you know, whether it's personalization, AI, yeah. you know, omnichannel was two years ago. What's the area that's exciting you now, where you think, you know, when I finish you and I get back to the office, this is what I really want to work on.
2: Yeah, two very exciting topics. We launched a couple of months ago our visual search, uh, not the first. But it's really exciting to see how our customers are using it and how we can match their photos with our product portfolio. You need to customize how you program mm-hmm. that. And there's a couple of really smart kids working on that bit and they're making progress every day. So it's super cool to see uh, what conversion we have on uh, the visual search and how we can improve that. And it's very, very technology and, uh, and indeed uh, AI driven. Yeah. And on the personalization part, indeed, we our, our, our product rankings are uh, are different for every person of which we know at least a couple of data points that we've already been doing for one or two years but it's the, the most difficult part there is to reduce complexity there's so many variables we are now changing on the site that it's hard to keep track of, what's the best thing to do next. So it's more managing complexity in that area than that personalization itself, the technology is very complicated. Mm. So those two topics are very uh, exciting and they're we can make a difference.
0: And how do you keep aligned then with your board colleagues, for example, in marketing or retail experience to make sure that the digital and e-commerce experiences are you know, really meshed with the overall brand values?
2: Yeah, well, we're in a we're in a very small office. So, uh, <laughs> and actually, my marketing and creative colleagues are, are just around the corner. So, um, it helps that, that we're not a, a massive company. There's a mm-hmm. couple of hundred people in the head office, so that makes it a bit easier to to stay aligned on all of those uh, topics. But it is a it is a challenge uh, indeed. But I think if you uh, if you have the right values, the same DNA, and if you keep on repeating that, then people will align each other typically, mm. but it's constant work. Yeah. Maybe
0: that's the trend for 2020 is talking to each other. Yeah, that's, it's a whole <laughs> new thing,
2: that unknown uh, area.
0: <laughs> well, we heard it here first. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for chatting. Uh, it'd be good to catch up with you uh, sometime next year, but in the meantime, thanks very much. Thank you. So our thanks to Richard and Peter for their welcome and for sharing their insights. Our next episode will also rove far and wide, but using the phone rather than flights. If you'd like to join us, then do volunteer, or feel free to suggest any guests or topics you'd like us to cover. But until next time, keep well, be safe, and wash those hands.